The one who understands the matter finds success, and the one who trusts in the Lord will be happy. And our second reading this evening is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verses 1 to 11, which can be found on page 1056. Now I, warn, I want to, oh sorry. now I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But God was not pleased with most of them, for they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things become examples for us, so that we will not des- desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to play. Let us not commit sexual immorality, and some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people fell dead. Let us not test Christ, as some of them did, and were destroyed by snakes. Nor should we complain, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as examples, and they were written as a warning to, to us, on whom the ends of the age have come. This is the word of the Lord. Hi friends, it's great to be here tonight. My name's Justin and I'm one of the student ministers here at Church by the Bridge. If this is your first time here, welcome. Hope you enjoy your time with us tonight and I'd love the chance to meet you afterwards as well. So a little bit about myself. Earlier this year, I popped to Taiwan and look, I haven't been to Taiwan in a long time. I reckon over 20 years. And you know, Taiwan's a, it's a pretty fascinating place. I don't know if you've been there before, but just a little bit of history about Taiwan. It was firstly colonized by the Dutch and the Spanish, and then I think the Japanese came in for a bit until the end of the Second World War, uh, and uh, the Chinese were there for a little bit as well. Uh, but you know what I love most about Taiwan? It's not the history. I mean, the culture's great. I love the food. The food is amazing. And Taiwanese people are totally into their food. I mean, so much so that they're really not just into their food generally, they're really into their snacks. Let me explain. So, you know, you walk into a supermarket and you buy a bag of, say, 100 nuts, right? And you open up that bag and what do you expect to find? Well, what you'd actually find is you'd find every five nuts individually sub-wrapped into these small packages, which is kind of awesome, right? Because, I mean, basically, you can stash these snacks anywhere, everywhere, all over yourself and pull them out whenever you want, whenever you're feeling a little bit peckish. Um, and so basically, I, you know, I, to be honest, I didn't think that these jeans could get any tighter. But in Taiwan, they did from all the snacks. But seriously, like, you know, spending a week in Taiwan was, it was really good. Uh, just being able to soak in the culture, the people, and the place. Uh, but what I noticed, and maybe some of you guys who have been there have noticed it as well, was this undercurrent of, I guess you'd call spirituality, just in day-to-day life. And you'd see it as you were walking around the city. You'd see the temples, obviously, uh, in various places. But what I really noticed was 
that when you walked into the stores and you know, the markets or the restaurants, you'd see these little altars set up, right, in the corners, sort of out of the way. And, you know, there'd be incense there and, you know, food there. And, and presumably, you know, that was food that was offered on a daily basis. And, you, you know, when you look at it from the outside, it doesn't seem that weird in its context. I mean, it might be a bit unusual for us. But at the same time, when you look at it, it doesn't look very, doesn't look like it's harmful at all, does it? It looks like it's fine just for people to, to make these sacrifices day in, day out. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, we're spending a bit of time looking at the Apostle Paul's letter to the Christians in the Corinthian church. And when we get to this part of the letter, the Apostle Paul's dealing with a pretty serious issue here, isn't he? What's that issue? Did you pick it up? It's religious self-confidence, isn't it? And what's at the heart of that religious self-confidence? Well, it's the heart of idol worship, isn't it? It's religious self-confidence expressed in idol worship, motivated by an idolatrous heart. And you can kind of get glimpses of that when you look at, say, verse 7 in your Bibles or verse 14. And that was a real problem, wasn't it, for the people in Corinth? But I want to say this, I reckon, and this is a big call, idol worship isn't just a problem for the people back in Corinth all those thousands of years ago. It's a problem for us right here, right now. Because you see, what I want us to explore tonight is the form of worship that was taking place in Corinth that's also taking place right here in our world right now. A form of worship that has all the appearances of religiousness and reverence. And yet, when you look deeper, it's a sort of religion which is self-destructive and very silent and very deadly. And so there's three things I want us to explore tonight. Firstly, I want us to examine what the religious life looks like. What does a life of religious self-confidence look like in our context and secondly, we're going to explore what drives this particular life. What's at the heart of the religious life? And we're going to see it's an idolatrous heart. But the third and final and most important thing is that I want us to spend some time exploring what the real solution is. What's the solution to this problem? And what we're going to see is that it's radical heart surgery from the inside out. And so if there's one thing that we can take away from tonight, this is what I want us to take away. That we will turn from our religious self-confidence that's in here and instead turn towards God in humble reliance on Him. So friends, you ready? Should we go to our first point? Let's do it. The religious life. You see, we flagged it already before, but the religious life is a life of dangerous self-confidence. And we're going to have a look at verses 1 to 5, because verses 1 to 5 really paint a picture for us in 1 Corinthians 10 here. Let's, let's have a look. This is what the Apostle Paul says. Now, I want, to, want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food or drank 
the same spiritual drink. For they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them. But God wasn't pleased with most of them, for they were struck down in the wilderness. I mean, that's one crazy story, isn't it? And you know who the Apostle Paul is talking about here? He's talking about the Israelites, their spiritual ancestors. I mean, they had experienced the blessings of God in these profound and confronting ways. But according to Paul, they still remain disconnected from God. You see that? What's going on here? It's a picture of religious self-confidence, isn't it? They basically equated the fact that they thought they had everything right on the outside and that that meant that they had everything right on the inside as well. They thought that having everything right, the right experience on the outside necessarily meant that they were in the right relationship with God. And that was a problem. I mean, growing up, I had lots of great experiences, lots of memorable family trips and experiences that I had. Um, And I remember when I was just four years old, when my parents first got me playing a musical instrument. And basically, they were so keen that they pieced together a handmade violin, which was made out of a tissue box and a ruler, and they had me play it using a chopstick, right? It's kind of cute, but it's also kind of pretty sad, right? But, you know, right from the start, I was encouraged to grab what I want, to go for my dreams and to pursue whatever was on my heart. And you know what? That's what I did. And I loved the feeling of acceptance. I loved the fact that people would reward uh, me going out and seeking this, all these things for myself. But here's the thing. If I'm honest, you know what those experiences grew in me? They grew in me a dangerous self-confidence. And you see, it's that sort of self-confidence that lies at the heart of a religious life. You see, this is what religion says. Listen to this. Religion says that sign up to a moral code, sign up to a, a set of values, do the right thing, live the good life, have all the right experiences, and you'll be accepted. True? That's what religion says, right? Here's my question. How do you know you're living the good life? Well, you compare yourself to those around you, right? You look at the person beside you and you look at what they've done and what you've done and then you make an assessment. You basically compare yourself to them and you say, okay, I'm safe. I've done enough. Not as bad as those guys over there. That's what religion says, right? I mean, of course, we all do it really respectfully and very politely. We don't, we don't confront each other with, with our assessments. But you see, what, what's the Apostle Paul saying here from the passage? If we're hearing him correctly, he's basically saying that this sort of religious life is going to lead us to a bad place, isn't it? You see that? Because as we've seen... The Israelites, who were God's chosen nation, they had all the right experiences. I mean, you can just 
look at it from those first five verses in the passage. They were, what, guided by God through the desert. They went through the, the parting of the, the Red Sea. They, they witnessed God providing them with food from heaven and water from the rock to satisfy their hunger and their thirst. They had all the, the right experiences and the right background. But Paul says, what's he say? They weren't okay. And again, what had they got wrong? They thought that because they had everything right on the outside, that they were necessarily okay on the inside. You see that? Have a look at what verse 12 says. Verse 12. Whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. You see that? I guess it's a question for each of us, isn't there? Let's turn it to ourselves. Are you and I spiritually self-confident? That's a hard question to ask, but it's an important one. Do we look at our contributions in our family, in our workforce, in our church, perhaps, and then think to ourselves, well, look at me. Of course God accepts me. Maybe for some of us, it's not so much that. Maybe for some of us, it's kind of self-pity. We kind of look at ourselves and we think, boy, I've done life. I've, I know what it means to go through tough times. I know what it means to have real life experiences. Look at how shallow those guys over there are. They couldn't possibly understand me. They couldn't possibly have insight into what real life is really like. Perhaps that's, that's us. But friends, let me tell you a story about someone. Someone uh, who I met a few years ago. Uh, his name's Craig. And I guess the big thing about Craig is that he didn't have all the right experiences. But Jen and I, my wife and I, we met Craig as we were at Circular Key um, one afternoon. And yeah, you know, we met Craig as he was sitting, sitting on, a, on a bench at Circular Key. And we just started to chat with him, just to get to know him. And he began to share his life with us, the neglect, the abuse, losing one family member to another over the years from cancer. And you know what? Craig wasn't angry at the world. He was just deeply sad. And so Jen and I were chatting with him. We offered him... Uh, some food, and he said, no, he didn't want any food. But what he did want was to sit down and pray with us, and that we prayed together that God would help him through this terrible and impossible mess of a life that he was in. And friends, that's exactly what we did. We sat down, we prayed to the God of the universe. See, Craig wasn't self-confident. I mean, you could see right from the go that he didn't have all the right experiences. But you know what? He was a man deeply connected with his creator in more ways than I could ever imagine. You see, friends, the religious life is a dangerous one, isn't it? But you know what? I want us to go further. I want us to get to the heart of what drives a religious life. And my second point is this. 
the life of religious self-confidence is driven by an idolatrous heart, a heart which is captured by the worship of idols. You see, the idolatrous life always involves, and the idolatrous heart always involves the worship of someone or something other than God himself. I mean, you can see that in the way that Paul presents that here, can't you? And then when you look at verse 6, this is what Paul's saying. He says this, look at verse 6. Now these things became examples for us so that we won't desire evil things as they did. Can you see that self-confidence is driven by the desires of our hearts and the desire to worship idols? And I guess, you know, idols are tempting because they speak directly to our desires. You can see that again in verse 13. See what Paul's getting at? Idolatry is a problem of the heart, isn't it? And that's why he warns them so strongly in verse 7. What does he say? Don't become idolaters as some of them were. I mean, in the Exodus story, they witnessed all the supernatural acts of God, hadn't they, that we talked about. We see Moses go up to the mountain, but then what's happening downstairs? They're making a golden calf, aren't they? And is this what idolatry is about? Is it about sort of making these gold objects or objects of stone? We see it was more than that, wasn't it? Because this golden calf was really a product of their imaginations, right? See, here's the thing. When the Bible talks about idolatry, it talks about it in a much broader space. Because you see, when, we talk, when you look at the Bible and the Bible talks about idols, idols are basically created things, so things which God has created, so by definition, good things, but which take the place of God in our lives. Can you see that? I mean, and we see it right from the start, right? Do you remember the start of the Bible? So basically, God's order of creation is it? it's God, and then he creates man and woman underneath him, and they are to have responsibility over all of creation and to enjoy it according to his good purposes. But then what happens? There's a reversal, isn't there? There's a reversal where basically a part of creation, the serpent, what happens? Speaks to the woman who then influences the man and both of them together disobey God and his commands for them. So basically, rather than obeying the creator, they're obeying creation itself, aren't they? And that's what happens when idolatry happens. And we see from Adam and Eve that basically the disobedience is not just a disobedience in, in action, but it's a disobedience of the heart and in thought. And we see what commonly follows idolatry, don't we? Have a look at verse 7. The second half of verse 7. What happens when idolatry happens? Indulgence in worldly pleasure. That's one thing. Verse 8, a distortion of God's good purposes for sex. You see that? And then verse 10, complaining, criticism, pulling down rather than building up. And what was it for the Corinthians? Well, it was all about the Lord's Supper, right? They thought that they could engage in idol worship on one hand and at the same time 
be part of the Lord's Supper and, and engage in that. And you can see that in verse 18, that, that Paul is really highlighting this particular problem. What does verse 18 say? It says, don't be like those who eat, don't who, those who eat the sacrifices participate in what is offered on the altar. And then verse 22, you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. That's the first problem. And what's the second? Well, they were elevating their own personal freedom above the good of others, weren't they? I mean, technically, sure, they were, they were allowed to eat anything that they wanted whenever they wanted. But what were they doing? They were indulging their spiritual freedoms at the expense of others. And that's why Paul says what he says in verse 23. Verse 23, everything is permissible, but not everything is helpful. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. And Paul's point is this. No one should seek his own good, but the good of the other person. The freedom of choice had become their idol. Okay, friends, let's turn it on ourselves and reflect on ourselves for a moment. Where are our idols? Where are they? Where do we get our sense of confidence from? What is it that captures our imaginations? What are our must-haves that we cannot live without? Are there things in our lives which we're holding on to, which are hurting us? Let's go deeper. What are the things that make us secretly jealous of others for? Maybe it's success, the desire for it. Maybe it's the desire for recognition. Maybe it's the desire for relationships, marriage or children or family. And you know what, friends? Those are all really good things. God created them for us to enjoy. But my question is this. Have we made them ultimate things which control us? So some of you know I've been working in a law firm full-time for over 10 years now. And sometimes people come up to me and they ask me, look, is, is working in a corporate law firm like an episode of Suits? And I look at them and I think, no, it's so much more boring than what happens in suits. Um, it's definitely not that exciting. But, you know, sometimes when I'm kind of letting my imagination wander a bit, I kind of wonder, you know, who would I be more like? Would I be more like, you know, Harvey Specter, who's super cool and super suave? Or would I be more like Lewis Litt? I think I'm probably more like Lewis Litt, you know, who's self-absorbed and slightly annoying. He's constantly whining throughout every episode. And, you know, the workplace is such a funny place, isn't it? I mean, we, we all dress like and look like adults, but half the time, let's be honest, we're acting like children, aren't we? True? We're squabbling and complaining, I'm entitled to this and you're not entitled to that. And what's driving? What do you think is driving all this behavior? Insecurity, right? A sense of entitlement. Because everyone's looking at us and going, your worth is only as big or as small as your pay packet. That success in the eyes of others actually matters. 
Let's be honest. Idolatry is everywhere in the workplace, isn't it? But, but let's be more honest. Idolatry is everywhere in our world and in our society, in our families, in our homes, in our hearts. Because you see, idols are anything which capture our hearts in the place of God. And there's this quote which I think really, really captures it for us. It's actually by an American author who is not a Christian, but listen to what he says. What he says is so insightful. He says this, everybody worships. If you worship money and things, then you'll never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty, and you'll always feel ugly. Worship power. And you'll feel weak and afraid, right? Worship being seen as smart, and you will always be feeling stupid as a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. He's so right, isn't he? There's a real problem, problem here, isn't there? Because if everything or anything can be an idol to us, What's the solution? And this is my last point. How do we break the dangerous patterns of religious self-confidence and the idolatrous heart that's in us? You know what the answer is? Radical heart surgery. What do I mean by that? It's actually about having our hearts captured and completely reshaped from the inside out by God's glory in place of the false glory that we give our idols, isn't it? I mean, that's why the Apostle Paul calls us to flee in this passage from idolatry. But there's a problem because we, not only do we need to flee, but we really need the motivation and the power to actually do it, don't we? I mean, otherwise we just kind of feel defeated when it doesn't go well for us. Or even worse, as we've seen tonight, we feel proud that we've managed to make our own way through it. The thing is this. When our hearts are captured by something much greater, we won't desire the lesser, will we? I mean, think about it for a second. A lot of us use phones. I mean, once you've used one of these, right, there's no way that you're going to go back to the 90s brick mobile phone, are you? I mean, for one thing, they wouldn't fit in these jeans. They probably wouldn't fit in your pants either. But that's the truth, right? Once we've tried something which is so much better, there's no way that we're going to go for the lesser, right? And it's the same when it comes to temptation. It's the same when it comes to temptation. That's why Paul says, when it comes to temptation in verse 13, this is, this is the important thing to note. Verse 13, no temptation is overtaking you except what is common to humanity. But listen to this, and this is important. It's God. Not you, not me, but God who is, what does it say? Faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with temptation, he'll also provide a way to escape so that you'll be able to bear it. The world says this, find your assurance Find your identity, find your meaning and purpose in things, right? What does God say? Find it in me. 
The world says be captured by my glory and the glory of the things around you. But what does Paul say in verse 31? Have a look. Be captured by God's glory. I mean, why, why is radical heart surgery so radical? We've talked about it already tonight. It's radical because it's literally change from the inside out. And where do we find that radical heart surgery? It's right there in the passage. It's right there throughout the entire passage in 1 Corinthians 10. It's the blood of Christ. Verse 16, the blood of Christ. Because you see, when Jesus got on that cross, he did it even though he could see all the idolatry in our hearts, in your heart, in my heart. But rather than actually judging us for it, what did he do? He took the judgment upon himself, right? He nailed it to the cross. And he achieved something for us that none of us could ever achieve. And what was that? Forgiveness. And friends, that's why the cross really is glorious, isn't it? Pastor Tim Keller says this. He puts it so well. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. And yet, I am so loved and valued that he was glad to die for me. Friends, the solution to our idolatry isn't a renovation of our morality. It isn't tacking on better values and better ethics. It's radical heart surgery. It's having our hearts captured by the glory of God and seeing our hearts transformed from the inside out. It's having our hearts focused on the glorious work of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection. And friends, that's the very thing which transforms a life of religious self-confidence into a life of humble reliance on God. So, as we wrap up tonight, I wanted to uh, share a story uh, with some of you guys, with you guys, which I think has really captured for me God's power to change a heart from the inside out. And I'm sure some of you have heard this story before, but it really captures it for me. It's a story about my sister. You see, my sister... Um, Growing up, had a very difficult time uh, during her high school years. And basically, it, there was a year where we spent numerous hours seeing doctors and then seeing counsellors and doing family counselling sessions together. And as we kind of got through the back end of that, my parents, um, God bless them, encouraged us to go to church. And so my sister went along to church, um, and basically, she immersed herself in all the best programs that the church had to offer. She went to all the Bible studies. She went to all the social gatherings that they had. And she even got baptized, I think, a couple of years later. She had all, I mean, when you looked at her from the outside, she had all the right experiences. You see, here's the thing. If you asked her now, if she had a relationship with God and she was connected with her creator, her answer would have been no. She had no 
real connection with God at that point in time. Now fast forward with me a few years later. So basically, my sister's gone from Sydney to Melbourne, and uh, she's started to build a life down there. And during one of the weekends, I go down and I visit her in Melbourne. And I'm hearing about how her life is going, and I can tell that things are tough. They seem well on the outside, but I know they're tough on the inside. And during one of our conversations, she says to me on the Saturday that she'd like to go to church. And I thought, wow, this is fantastic. I'd love to go to church with her. She hasn't been for years. So we go into the church service uh, in Melbourne Central, uh, in the heart of Melbourne. And we sit at the back of church and we're listening to a sermon from the Gospel of John. Uh, And at the start of John, Jesus is calling his disciples to follow him. And as we get to the end of the sermon, I could see something shift. And I'll explain what I mean. I could see something shift because I could sense that for the first time, after all these years, my sister finally got what God's love meant for her in here. And as we got to the last song, we finished singing that. I could just see her in tears. I'd never seen her like that before. And we stopped and we prayed that God would reveal himself to her, that God would break the idols in her life. And friends, that's exactly what he did. And I could see the change in her life because it was almost instantaneous. Overnight, she developed a massive hunger to know God better by just reading his word. She was reading the Bible literally for hours on end. And then she was in this well-paid, very secure job in a very toxic environment. And she just took the step of faith and decided to step out of that environment with no job to go, go to, nothing prepared. She joined a church, became a volunteer student minister, um, joined the ministry team and then started an art therapy degree, and now she's using the desires that God has put on her heart to help people find healing through her gifts. You see, when God grabs our hearts, he does something amazing from the inside out. He breaks your and my religious self-confidence. He breaks your and my self-pity, and he frees us to be the people that we were meant to be in him. So friends, I don't know a lot of you guys, and I don't know exactly where you're at in your walk with God, but if you're sensing that God is speaking to you tonight, and he's calling you to lay down your religiousness, your idolatry, and your self-confidence, to turn from those things and instead to turn to him and to receive his mercy, his forgiveness, and his love. And if you're feeling that in your heart tonight, then I don't want you to walk away from tonight ignoring that. Chat with someone that that you trust. Have a chat with me or have a chat with LT or one of the pastors here. We would love to talk to you and to pray with you and to help you turn back to God connect with him and be in relationship with him because that's his deepest desire for you and me. Friends, shall we pray together?